Hey, my name is Philip Craig. I'm the pastor here at Aria Church. Thanks so much for joining us. I hope this podcast empowers you, hope it fuels your faith, and hope it impacts your life. Enjoy the message. So we're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they sent and gathered all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? They answered, let the ark of God of Israel be brought to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they'd brought it, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a great panic. And he afflicted the men of that city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out in them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They've brought the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. So there's quite a bit there to unpack, and should probably start by giving a bit of context, because whenever you look at any part of the Bible, the context's key to seeing how it fits into the big picture. So what had been going on here? This was a period of time whenever national borders weren't really so much of a thing, Your territory didn't stop where the big thick line on the map said it stopped. It stopped where your army said it stopped. It was as much as your army could conquer. So there were all sorts of regular skirmishes as various enemies tried to take land off the Israelites. And the Israelites, they had a pretty significant advantage in battle because they weren't fighting alone. They had the help of the God of Angel armies fighting their battles. Prior to going into battle, the Israelites would have come before the Ark of God and consulted with God, asking him to be with them in battle. So we we need to talk and explain a little bit about the Ark of the Covenant. You might not know much about it. Maybe you only know about it from Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. For those of you who usually get to slip out to Breakout, that was a movie from before Indiana Jones was ruined with aliens and nuclear bomb-proof fridges. So growing up in the, the time frame that I did, I was a little bit too young to have seen the original Indiana Jones movies, but I was old enough that the kids' worship song, I'm in the Lord's Army, was still being sung at Sunday schools. And it was a very confusing song for people of my age because as a five-year-old, I had no idea who Indiana Jones was, never mind why I wasn't to be like him. But in the, the movie, The Raiders of the Lost Ark, you see the, the Ark of the Covenant is found by Indiana Jones and has the power to melt the faces off Nazis. Now, apologies if that's a bit of a spoiler, but the movie is 42 years old, so 
that's on you if you haven't seen it. And I've done the Bible studies and looked at all the commentaries, and I can't find any evidence that the ark actually does have that power. But what the ark was, was it was a wooden chest completely covered in gold, and inside the ark there was the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments, there was Aaron's rod to symbolize God's leadership, and there was a pot of manna, the, the bread that God sent from heaven when the Israelites were in the wilderness, to remind them of his love, provision, and care. So the ark served to represent God's presence with his people. But the real significance of the ark was what happened with the mercy seat, which was the lid of the ark. Once a year, the, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies where the ark was kept, and he would atone for the sins of the Israelites by offering a sacrifice of an animal. And it was the only place in the world that that atonement could take place. So the ark was really significant for the people of Israel, and it acted as a symbolic foreshadowing of the, the ultimate sacrifice for all of our sin, the blood of Jesus on the cross. Because as Christians, we no longer look to the ark, we look to Jesus himself as the sacrifice for our sins. But we see at the start of this chapter that I've read out that the ark had been captured by the Philistines. So what was going on there? The Israelites at that time, they'd been straying from true devotion to God. They were all sorts of, there was all sorts of corruption going on within the priesthood and within the people. The high priest's sons had been described a few chapters earlier as scoundrels, and if the stuff that they were doing in the church was to happen in the church today, there'd be an expose TV series made about it. So God allowed them to suffer defeat in battle. Uh, there was a small battle just before this that the, the Israelites had lost before they went into this bigger battle with the Philistines. And God had hoped that that would cause them to come back to him, but it didn't. So the, the people of Israel, because they've had this defeat, they decide what they're going to do is they're going to bring the Ark of the Covenant to the battlefield because they thought it would be the, the equivalent of calling in a, a tactical airstrike in Call of Duty. Because after all, whenever they'd marched around the walls of the city of Jericho, they did carry the Ark with them and then the walls fell down. But on the battlefield, the Philistines hold firm. They kill 30,000 Israeli soldiers and they capture the Ark. You see, the problem was the Israelites had turned to a form of religious superstition. They were trusting in the Ark of God rather than in the God of the Ark. And at that time, the custom of the day for the various nations around Israel was that whenever you went to battle, your gods also went to battle. And if you won a battle, you took the other nation's gods and they became subservient to your own gods. The Israelites were pretty unique in only worshiping one god. All the other nations had many different gods gods for weather, harvest, war gods, fertility gods, all represented by idols, which were handmade statues that they placed in temples. Whatever you wanted or needed, you made an offering to that specific god coming before their idol. And whenever you defeated a rival nation, you would then take over that nation's gods in the hope that they would add to your strength. You see, they believed in relative truth rather than ultimate truth. They weren't asking if God was real, but if God would be helpful and useful to them. They valued what worked over what was true. And maybe the culture then isn't so different to the culture now, because people today aren't asking uh, if what we believe is true. First of all, they want to know if it works, if it makes a difference in our life. So we need to be aware of that, and we need to let them see the difference that Jesus does make in our lives before they'll want to know more about our faith. So the chief god for the people of Philistine was called Dagon, not Dragon. He's thought to have been a harvest and fertility god, and they think that he had the body of a fish and the head of a human. So whenever the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant, they think it's just another idol, and they decide they're going to place it in Dagon's temple beside the statue of Dagon, which is whenever things take a bit of an unusual turn. 
The Philistines, they turn up the next morning thinking that they're coming just to offer their usual sacrifices to Dagon, and instead they find him lying on the ground. Maybe they thought it was the local youth up to no good. Teenagers do tend to get up to various shenanigans and hijinks. We've, we've all been there, right? I need to be careful as I don't want to give too many ideas to our youth before their camp later in the summer, but whenever I was in my late teens, I spent my summers working at a summer camp in upstate New York. Uh, it was a Bible camp, uh, but there was a great culture of pranks, and one of the ones that really I enjoyed was with the high schoolers. We told them one evening that we were going to sneak out after curfew and go stargazing, but we had it all set up that the senior leaders of the camp were going to come to the dormitory, find that we were missing, send out a big search party, and then bring all of us as leaders in and fire us in front of the kids for being irresponsible. We thought the campers would immediately see right through it whenever people started getting fired, because obviously that's a bit of an overreaction. But the kids, they were breaking out in tears. They were offering to, to host us in their own houses until we could arrange flights back home to the UK. And it all went very, very well. <laughs> Got to love the American gullibility. So whether the Philistines blamed the local youths or whether they thought maybe it had been a, a windy, stormy night, regardless of what they thought, they picked up the statue of Dagon and they put it back in its place. Isn't that an irony? The God that they thought was so powerful had to be picked up and put in place by human hands. And the next morning, it's an even bigger shock because not only has Dagon fallen again, but this time his head and his hands are cut off. So the Philistines decide that enough's enough. It's time to, to pass the, the ark on to another town. They hold a vote and Gath gets the short straw. And as soon as the people of Gath receive the ark, they start developing what's been translated as tumors. The scholars think that this was quite possibly in the form of hemorrhoids. And if you don't know what hemorrhoids are, basically, if you're suffering from them and you go to the prayer ministry team, they're not going to be laying hands on you for that. <laughs> so needless to say, the, the people of Gath, they quickly decide that actually maybe having the ark isn't a good idea. So they again decide to pass it on to the next town, Ekron. And when it comes to Ekron, the reputation has preceded it. They begin to panic, and sure enough, the tumors develop, people die, and at this point they decide, right, that, that's enough towns, we're, we're not going to try this again, we're just going to send the ark back. We, they decide to send it back to Israel. So God has restored to his people what they thought had been lost. Now you might be sitting here thinking, it's a great story, you might be intrigued by the battle and the fallout, you might be thinking it would make for a great Netflix series, but you might be wondering what exactly is the relevance and significance for us today? Which is a fair question, because after all, we don't worship statues today. We don't go to temples with idols in them. We've moved on from that. So what is the relevance of this passage? Well, I believe that we are all still prone to have idols today. Sure, we don't go around erecting statues of them and bringing sacrifices to them, but we do it in a different, more subtle way. You see, the Bible teaches us that we're all made in the image of God, and an idol is simply an attempt to make a God in our image. And we still do that today. It might not be a bronze statue that you craft, but we all try to rationalize away the bits of Jesus' teachings that we don't like. We dismiss the parts of the Bible that are uncomfortable as being just for that time, and we skip over the teachings that might get us cancelled if we proclaim them publicly today. And if you missed the message last week, it's proof that here at R8, we're not going to skip the uncomfortable teachings. You see, often we can be guilty of turning the God of creation, the God who made the universe, into just our own personal magic wish genie, there to give us what we want and pray for without any obedience or surrender required on our behalf. And just like the Philistines, we too can worship created things. You see, the idols that they made in those cultures generally had their roots in a good created thing. Fertility gods, harvest gods, weather gods, those are all good things in and of themselves, but they're not the ultimate thing. You see, what they did was 
they elevated the created above the creator. And we still do that today. I'm including myself in this. We can be guilty sometimes when we read the Bible of what C.S. Lewis describes as chronological snobbery. We have this tendency to, to view ourselves as morally superior to those backwards primitive types back then because we're so much more intellectually enlightened now. We scoff at the notion of the Israelites or the Philistines worshiping idols that they'd made themselves. We would never be as foolish as that. And I think we need to bear in mind the warning Jesus gave about pointing out the specks in other people's eyes. We need to be aware of the planks that are in our own eyes first. You see, worship is simply ascribing worth, saying something's worth our devotion and our focus. And we all worship something. If you don't believe me, just think back to the last concert or sports match that you were at. Where's all the Taylor Swift fans who were spending all morning on Friday trying to get tickets? Is that a hand raised I see from Patty and Tim? More importantly, who actually got a ticket and has spare ones because despite lots of prayer and fasting, I only made it to the wait list. <laughs> so whenever you're at a concert, be it Taylor Swift or Coldplay, no matter your musical choice, there's going to be certain similarities. People are going to be raising hands, they're going to be raising their voices. And it's the same whenever Ulster score a try or Armagh get a goal. The crowd's going to roar, flags will be raised, drinks will be thrown in the air. And what's happening in that moment? People are worshipping. You see, the sin of idolatry is ascribing worth to created things, to the wrong things. The question isn't, what will we, wor the question isn't, will we worship, but what will we worship? You see, those in the ancient Near East, they made idols out of things like crops, weather, and fertility. And we can be just like them, because whilst we might not have statues we bow down to, we still give worth and praise to things like food, sun, and sex. We no longer go to the Temple of Dagon to worship our idols. Instead, we follow them on Instagram, Facebook, threads. Is threads still a thing? Do we need to set up a church account for that? Or has it died yet? Now, you might be thinking, what's the big deal? So what if we give our attention to following a sports team or binging the latest Netflix thriller? It's not like it harms anyone. You see, modern-day idols, they often disguise themselves as good things. They promise fulfillment, security, and satisfaction, but ultimately, they're going to leave us empty, longing for more. They captivate our hearts, and they demand our time, but they just whisper lies to us, telling us that our worth is based on our accomplishments or our possessions, but deep down, they're false gods, and whenever we give our hearts to those idols, we begin to neglect our relationship with God, and we compromise on our values. We find ourselves sacrificing time with loved ones, we neglect our spiritual growth, and we can compromise on our integrity to pursue those idols that only offer fake hope and false help. You see, our true help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. The idols, they invite us to give and give and to chase and strive to try and possibly find satisfaction. But Jesus, he invites us to come and rest. Jesus reminds us that a life that isn't built on his word is built on sand. You see, if you build your life on idols, whenever the storms of life come, there's going to be a crash. The idols, they're not going to protect or sustain you. We need to build our life on Jesus, the solid rock, because Jesus is the only one who's never going to give us up or let us down. He's never going to run around and desert us. I think that's from the message translation. The idols, they offer a corruption of the good things that God gave. Whenever we make an idol of alcohol, we end up with addictions and liver problems. When we make an idol of money, we end up overworking, spending no time with our family, and then wondering why our kids turn out dysfunctional. When we make an idol of sex, we can turn to porn and one-night stands, seeking fulfillment, but we only end up feeling empty and unloved. You see, the idols can enslave us. We get trapped in that never-ending cycle of striving for more, but never finding true contentment. You see, God, he's invited us to find freedom, to be released from bondage and to discover purpose. 
And so that's why I believe that it matters that we take action and stop worshiping the false idols. So my prayer today is that we would learn to develop better appetites, that we would stop craving the junk food hit that is offered by the false idols, and instead start to feast on the rich goodness of God. So let's press in a little now into some of the key concepts as to what this passage has to teach us. So the first big observation is that we need to stop going through the motions of same old, same old. See, we worship a God who is constantly doing a new thing, whose mercies are new every morning. He doesn't want us just doing the same thing again again and again and again. He wants us to grow, to move forward, to take steps and to take new ground. He wants us to not be stuck in the childish things of youth, but to grow to full maturity, to move from milk to solid food as we go through that journey of sanctification, becoming more and more like Jesus. You see, the Israelites, they brought the ark as a good luck charm to battle because they'd had success with it before. But their hearts were still far from God. And we've all been there, right? Maybe you've had an exam or a big job interview coming up and you decide you're going to do a little bit of extra Bible reading or stick some worship music on in the car on the journey to it so that then God will owe you a good outcome. And what God was trying to show the Israelites and us is that we can't rely on just a simple method or a formula. We can't just go through a tick box to try and earn spiritual brownie points. We have to rely on him. God's calling us to a life of wholehearted devotion rather than a life of just trying to use him as a lucky charm. So what does that mean for us? It means that whenever we pray, it's not just about following a set script, trying to get in all the right buzzwords so that God will answer our prayers. Our quiet times of Bible reading are going to vary from season to season. Sometimes God will want us to read through lengthy passages for depth. Other times he'll want us just to hone in on a couple of verses and he'll give us revelation that jumps off the page. The Holy Spirit speaks to us in different ways in different seasons because what God wants and desires is our devotion to him, not a particular method or a style. So then to to move on into the significance of Dagon's head being cut off and his hands, as I said, idols are, are good things turned into ultimate things. Success, wealth, atoned body. We all tend to chase after these goals, but whenever they overshadow our devotion to God, then they become an idol for us. So the second time that Dagon fell, his head and his hands were broken off, left lying on the threshold with only his body remaining. So what was the significance? Well, the head, it represents wisdom, and the hands, they symbolize power. And now Dagon was left completely foolish and completely helpless. You see, we all look to something, some false god, as a source of wisdom and power for us. We all have that thing, be it a job, a relationship, or a flashy car, where we think, if we just get that, then I'll be a somebody. And it becomes our source of wisdom and power. But in order to draw closer to God, he has to cut off the head and hands of that idol, so that he alone becomes our source of wisdom and power. You see, you can't approach God without him revealing the things that you truly trust in for power and wisdom. Some of us will idolize one thing, others another, but everyone has something we can be tempted to idolize and to lift up above God in our life. But we can't grow closer to God until those idols crumble. In God's presence, we see that idols fall. His presence demands complete commitment and the destruction of your idols, removing their head and their hands. You see, whenever you remove the head and the hands from an idol, it's no longer an issue. It was just the head and the hands that came off Dagon. His body was left intact because there's nothing inherently wrong, for example, with work, as long as you remove it from the position of being the best thing in your life. Work is good. Harvest that Dagon represented is a good thing. We need food to survive. They're all good things, but the problem arises whenever you elevate them to that position of being the ultimate thing. Whenever anything becomes the best thing, it becomes an idol, and we have to demote it. 
you don't necessarily need to eliminate it completely. There's nothing wrong with work if it doesn't become the defining aspect of your identity. Sorry if anyone was hoping to use this message as an excuse to quit work tomorrow. So I want to focus now on the idols we can be tempted to struggle with today. It would be easy for me to stand up here this morning and call out some of the big cultural idols that run opposed to the ways of God and get you all fired up and on board with me. We could have a nice time applauding and feeling good about how superior we are in here compared to all the, the filthy heathens out there. And then we could all go home and feel nice and smug without having to do any actual personal introspection and without having to do any application to our own lives. So I'm not going to do that. I want to do something that's going to make more of a significant impact in our own personal lives. I want to call attention to the idols that we can so easily find ourselves tempted to bow down to. And I believe that there's a number that in this particular cultural moment we find ourselves living in that we can be prone to. The first thing we've made an idol out of is comfort and entertainment. See, everything in life at the moment is designed around making things more convenient and easier for us. Don't get me wrong, that's not always a bad thing. I'm grateful that I have all sorts of modern inventions in my life to make things easier and I don't have to wash my clothes by hand, for example. But at present, I think we've elevated comfort and entertainment a little bit too highly. We don't want to do anything that requires too much hard work. We want the quick and easy, the, the viral life hack videos on Instagram. We want to be entertained rather than challenged. Netflix has made it all too easy to spend an evening zoning out, chilling with entertainment rather than being edified by truth. But God didn't create us merely to be entertained throughout our lives. He created us to live lives of purpose, to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. But often instead, we settle for a box set binge. And that's where I have to throw my hands up and admit that, as my wife helpfully pointed out whilst I was discussing what I was going to share, the entertainment of sport can often become an idol for me. You see, the problem with idolizing comfort and entertainment is the impact it has on the outliving of our spiritual lives. We can value relevance over reverence, preferring entertaining messages over edifying messages. We become consumers, devouring Christian content, but with no application of it. Our heads grow, but our hands remain idle. Think about some of the prayers we pray when someone we know is going on a mission trip or is about to take part in serve day. Hint, hint for something next Saturday. We pray, Lord, we ask that you would keep us safe as we serve. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul praying and asking God to keep him safe in his missionary journeys? Paul describes his experience in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 24 to 27. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. At night and day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, and in cold and exposure. You see, here's the thing we see from Paul. You can either value safety and comfort, or you can value fruitful service for the sake of God's kingdom. So maybe we need to have a mindset shift and stop asking God to keep us safe, and start asking God to keep us fruitful. Often at the roots of why we turn to idols of entertainment, comfort, and pleasure is boredom. But whenever we have an encounter with God, we can't be bored. You see, God's word isn't boring. You may have heard a boring preacher, although hopefully not this morning. But the message of hope that we have in this book, once we truly grasp it, is never boring. So the second idol that we can be tempted to bow down to is money. Particularly at the moment with the, the cost of living crisis, I'm sure everyone would appreciate a bit of extra cash. 
don't know if any of you have been in the unfortunate position I was in recently, having to remortgage and seeing the bank taking significantly more each month than they used to. You see, God doesn't wish for us to live in poverty or constant need. He desires us to live lives of abundance. He tells us in the Bible that workers deserve a wage, but whenever we allow wealth to become our core pursuit, it becomes an idol. If we're constantly looking for ways to make a few extra pounds, it's very likely wealth has become an idol. Being wise with your money is one thing, but obsessing over it is another. Another sign that wealth or money has become an idol in your life is if the idea of giving money away makes you cringe. And from the stage here, whenever I do the offering messages, I can see exactly who's flinching whenever I share those. If you take pride in how much money you make and that's the only thing you look for in a job, then it's probably an idol in your heart. If you decide what to buy, not based on what you can afford, but on what will look impressive on your social media followers' pages, money is probably an idol for you. You see, wealth is not sinful in and of itself, but it becomes an idol when it's your sole pursuit. And we break the hands and the head off the idol of money by remembering that everything we have comes from God. It's a gift from Him. He alone is our provider. And we need to remember that the treasures that are ahead of us in heaven are worth far, far more than even Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk have stored up on earth. The next one to mention is family. Obviously, family life is a good gift from God. It's the norm for us as Christians to desire to be married and have a family. And actually, at this point, I want to, to pause and as a church family, celebrate and congratulate Yule, who I believe is watching on the live stream and has just recently made it his chosen stance to get down on one knee and propose. So hopefully you'll, you'll give us an in-person invite to your wedding rather than a, a live stream invite. <laughs> but while the norm is to desire to be married and have a family, it's not going to be the reality for everyone. You see, there's, there's some people who've been given that gift of singleness, and there's others who, for various reasons, won't be able to have children. Often, people who are single can make relationships an idol, chasing after them, thinking that that's going to complete them. And then you get into a relationship and you realize you still have all the same issues, plus probably a, a whole collection of new ones too. So you start looking around to see if there's a better option out there. Now, there's nothing wrong with continuing to invest in your relationship if you're dating or married today, but romance can very easily become something that we idolize and we can use the, the level of romance in our relationship to become the only standard by which we value that relationship. But let's be honest, often married life can be far from romantic in the mundane tasks of day-to-day -day life, particularly changing bedsheets. You see, idolizing romance can leave you unsatisfied whenever the mundane comes, and it can even possibly lead you stumbling down a path you never intended to venture. And for those of us who do have a family, our children can very easily become our whole world. Now, I'm sure your child is great, but they're not that great. Sorry, Ada and Abigail, if you come across the recording of this later in life. So what do I mean by that? We begin to idolize our family if we see our family unit as this inwardly focused huddle that's above all else in life. Whenever our family becomes more important than church, caring for other people and living out the love of Jesus, we've turned our family into an idol. Short term, your kids may prefer it if you take them on exciting trips on a Sunday, but long term, they're going to be much more glad if you put God above all else and prioritize getting to church. You see, we break the head and the hands off the idol of family by remembering that as Christians, we've all been adopted into God's family. Regardless of our current circumstances, if we believe in him, we're already part of the best family. We don't need the flawless earthly family with 2.4 perfect children to complete us. We're already part of God's family. That's where our identity comes from. That's where our true belonging lies. Now, there's plenty of other idols out there that I don't have time to focus on this morning, such as image, fitness, and career. But in the interests of time, we need to move on. 
The passage we've looked at this morning reveals the powerlessness of false gods before the Almighty. It serves as a reminder to us that no idol, no matter how appealing, can compare with the love of God. So maybe you struggle with the idols I've mentioned, or maybe it's something else that's a struggle for you. Maybe there's something else that you're tempted to give more focus and devotion to than you give to Jesus. But whatever your personal struggle is with, we need to be reminded that thankfully, God desires to set us free from the bondage of false gods and lead us into a life of true worship. In the person of Jesus, we find the ultimate antidote to idolatry. You see, Jesus reveals the true nature of God, and he shows us that our ultimate fulfillment is found in him alone. He alone meets all of our needs and gives rest to our soul. He calls us to a life of surrender, where we lay down our idols at his feet and make him the center of our lives. Whenever we put God first, our desires get transformed, and we seek to use our gifts and resources for his glory and the good of others. You see, our God's not some mild, timid God who will tolerate us putting other things on a level pegging with him. We can't live for God and anything. We must live all for God. There can be no and. He alone deserves all of our praise, adoration, and devotion. He's the God who causes idols to fall before his presence. He's not going to share his glory with another. We need to be reminded of the words of Jesus in Matthew 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And you can replace money in that sentence with whatever your idol of personal preference is. Our lives can't be served, can't be lived in service of God and anything. We need to be fully surrendered. You see, God isn't looking for half-hearted Christians who will give him a couple of hours on a Sunday. God's looking for all-in devotion. The Israelites, they tried to use God and the ark as a good luck charm. The Philistines wanted to put God on a shelf as just another option among many. But the only place God wants and deserves in our life is Lord of all. If he isn't Lord of all in your life, then he isn't Lord at all. So what false idols do you need to let fall down today? What do you need to ask the Holy Spirit to cut the head and the hands off today? What things have you been allowing to compete for your heart's affection? If you look at the context at the start of 1 Samuel 5, the Israelites thought that this was the end. They thought it was over. They'd been defeated. The ark had been captured. Many of their family and friends had been killed. They had no hope, but God hadn't given up on them. God was still at work, even in what seemed like an impossible, hopeless situation. When there was nothing the Israelites could do, God did the impossible. So be encouraged this morning if you find yourself in a hopeless situation. God's still moving today, moving in ways you might not expect, moving in places you wouldn't predict, bringing victory that you might have given up on. You see, the hands of Dagon were cut off, but God's hand remains steady. We worship the unchanging, unfailing God. The hope we find this morning is that we can have confidence of victory, not because of the strength of ourselves or the strength of our country's army. The passage we looked at this morning shows us that victory belongs to God, even in what seems like impossible circumstances. It looked like a tragedy with Israel defeated and the ark captured, but ultimately God brought about victory with the return of the ark. And we can be reminded and encouraged that God is still in the business of making impossible things possible today, bringing hope to what might seem like a hopeless situation for you this morning. You see, the problem that both the Israelites and the Philistines had was they took God lightly. They didn't give him the devotion he deserves. They didn't treat him with reverence and awe. This account should cause us to take notice. We can't take God lightly. To come into the presence of God is a weighty matter. It's not something we should do casually. We see that there's consequences when we don't give God the reverence he deserves. The Philistines defied God, trying to live with him as just another option. And we see that as a result, death came to them. And it's a warning to us too. 
If we live a life of defying God, a life not lived in surrender to Jesus as Lord, ultimately, death is coming to us too. So what does it mean to defy God? It means to not give him the glory, honor, and reverence he deserves. It means treating his commands as suggestions, his ways as just another option to be considered. It means presuming upon his grace, assuming that we can live how we like because the death of Jesus has covered it all anyway. The events in 1 Samuel 5 may have taken place a long time ago, but they serve as a reminder to us as to what happens when we defy God. Initially, it may seem like defiance is feasible. The Philistines won the battle. It may seem that we can get away with it. However, that's not the case. We need to remember another significant event, the ultimate defeat of God's enemies, and that occurred when Jesus was crucified on the cross. In that moment, it appeared that defiance of God had triumphed. Jesus was crucified on the cross, seemingly in weakness. It resembled the capture of the ark. However, early on the third morning, something exceptional took place in the tomb, surpassing even what had happened in the temple of Dagon. The Bible reveals that the seemingly defeated one emerged in victory. And it struck me as I reflected on this passage that when Dagon fell before the ark, before the presence of God, it was a foreshadowing of a day that is coming when every knee will bow before Jesus. We've actually, we've been singing about it earlier, and Paul points us to that day in Philippians 2, verses 8 to 11, writing that Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow on, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, through the blood of Jesus, the chains that once held us bound to the idols of the world have been broken. We now have freedom to walk in allegiance to Jesus rather than being enslaved by the pursuit of money or sex. Whenever Dagon fell, he needed people to lift him up. Jesus was beaten, crucified, put in a grave, and on the third day, he rose himself. Dagon's hand and head were broken off, and then death came to the Philistines. Jesus' body was broken for us, his head scarred by thorns, and his hands pierced by nails. But that brought us life. Whenever we turn to Jesus, we find hope, freedom, truth, and abundant life. The idols promise much, but deliver little. They never truly satisfy. But Jesus invites the weary and burnt out to come to him and find rest. Dagon fell unwillingly, but Jesus willingly went to the cross, dying the death that we deserved so that we could be set free from bondage to sin and idol worship. Whenever Dagon fell and people lifted him, he didn't stay risen. He fell again. But when Jesus was crucified, on the third day he rose, and he's remained risen ever since. The Philistines worshipped a false god that they had to lift when it fell. We worship the one true God who reaches out to lift us when we fall. They worshiped a God whose hands and head were cut off and stayed off whilst death came to his people. We worship a king whose hands and head were pierced, but who rose triumphant to give us eternal life. Hope you enjoyed the podcast today. I hope it encouraged you. There's a few things I'd love you to do. I'd love you to subscribe to our YouTube, iTunes, or Spotify account. This is so you can keep up with our most recent material and messages. If this ministry has impacted your life, and you'd love to help us reach others, you can do that right now by going to ariachurch.org and giving now. Cannot wait to see you next week on the Ariat Church podcast.